This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, y'all. This is Robert Donaldson from the All Eyes podcast. And please bear with me as I try to battle through some congestion this week. With that said, it couldn't be a more fitting time to introduce you all to our very first sponsor. So, without further ado, this week's episode is brought to you by FOCO USA. FOCO is the official face covering of the Iowa Hawkeyes, and if you've been watching Iowa football at all this year, you've seen the new Hawkeye face coverings and neck gaiters that the players and coaches have been wearing, and FOCO was even nice enough to send some out to myself and Thad, and they look great, and they're definitely the most high-quality face mask that I've had since this whole thing started, and if you wanted to grab one for yourself, feel free to head over to FOCO.com and even tell them that the All Eyes crew sent you. What's up, all of you beautiful people, and welcome back to the All Eyes Podcast. And Thad, should we gloat now or later about how right we were about analyzing this Minnesota matchup? Never stop. Never stop with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it turned out pretty much what we, we thought and expected. Uh, Minnesota was limited in a lot of spots, uh, relied offensively on, we said, three players. It ended up really being two. Tanner Morgan isn't doing anything for them. Um, so they were just reliant on two players and offensively really didn't weren't able to do anything. And that defense and defensive line was as bad as expected. And Iowa completely dominated, uh, really didn't need to do almost anything with the pass game. But what pass game there was, was what we talked about. Uh, quick three-step drops to the perimeter, some wide receiver screen game, and, and that was enough. And by the end, it was just some play action uh, for a couple big plays, and, and that was all she wrote. Yeah, you know, sometimes when you really dig into two teams, <clears throat> you know, weaknesses won't really provide themselves um, so vividly or so, you know, outwardly. But when you watch the Minnesota team and how Iowa's been playing since even week one, when, you know, in their first two losses, it was so easy to see that this was a blowout in the making. And from the first drive and the second drive and third drive on, it just felt like we knew the trajectory that it was going. And that's exactly where it went, you know there's just nothing that Minnesota had on offense or defense that Iowa couldn't really neutralize or even exploit outside of, you know, Rashad Bateman, in my opinion. And even with his numbers, I felt like Iowa did a really great job on him. Yeah. Like you said, even his numbers, you know, I think he ended up over a hundred yards and, and uh, you know, they, they ran the ball, they got some yardage for totals, uh, but it took them over, you know, 30 carries to get to hundred yards. So, and at that point, once they were down, okay, yeah, go run the ball, uh, pad those stats and, and take your L. Yeah. And, you know, before we move on even further, we have to talk about Kirk's comments because that is soundbite gold. I mean, like generational soundbite that's going to live on, you know, even after he's done. I, I love it. I figured we'd take Floyd with us and leave the timeouts here. Oh my gosh, where did that come from? Where did it come from? <laughs> you don't get many, uh, many, much poster board material from Kirk Ferentz, but you can tell that there is, uh, there's a little animosity between these two coaching staffs. And it started uh, a couple years ago when, when Brian Ferentz was on the radio and said, you know, we don't hand out scholarships to everybody like they do up north or, or that place out east. And took some shots at the way the way they recruit and the way they've pressured kids into you know committing on the spot, and well, I mean Amir Smith Marset's one of those guys that was originally committed to Minnesota and then and then ended up committing uh, flipping to Iowa, and they just don't like what they do. Uh, you know, their Iowa staff is very no you know no nonsense, straight to the point, and Fleck is you know he's a character. And I think it's really him. I don't think 
he plays it up that much, maybe a little, but it, it's just not, it's not at all what Iowa does. So, you know, you win now six in a row and, and you can fire that, you know, there were several tweets from the official Iowa account uh, with Roe in there and a few other shots at Minnesota. So that was fun. I mean, it's a rivalry game. Uh, good to get one of those and take those shots while you got a chance. You know, I can't remember who said it on Twitter, who tweeted it, but a while back, somebody said something about PJ Fleck and they were just like, anytime PJ Fleck is giving an interview, whether it's before the game or after the game, I feel like he's trying to sell me a used car. And, and that's just the vibe that I got from PJ every single time since he came into the big 10. It's just, you know, um, you know, he's very impassioned. That's for sure. And I actually kind of love that about him, but he does kind of seem like he gives off this fake aura about him. And especially leaving his starters in down 35 points in the fourth quarter and then calling a timeout near Iowa's goal line. Like I can totally see why Kirk was saying, you know what? Let's call everything. Let's unload the clip. I, I don't really blame him for it. There's some positive things with PJ Fleck. I, I do think he's a, a good football coach and he's, he's been able to recruit a little bit and it's a team that wants to be um, a team that wins along the line of scrimmage. But with all of that said, uh, you know, when you say all those things, when you do all that, when you promote the way he does, when it doesn't go your way, you're going to get those shots fired back. And, and if you're going to get the praise that he got, you know, when they were undefeated for a big stretch of last year, you're going to take the criticism when things don't go well. And now all of a sudden, instead of being like, hey, look at this fiery coach, when it's not working, it doesn't look very good. And we see the same thing right now uh, with Coach Allen at Indiana, you know, they're winning. Hey, a passionate guy going, going nuts. But if they lose all of a sudden now it's, well, that guy's crazy. Yeah. Those guys get the bump really fast. And the thing is, is that, yeah, PJ Fleck had, you know, a career year at Minnesota sort of felt like it revitalized like the program last year. But the thing is, is now the conversation moving forward, if they don't turn around this season is, you know, he won with another coach's guys. And I've already seen that discussion floating around the Minnesota fan base a little bit already because it is year four for him. So this should be, you know, mostly for the most part, his guys. And now it just feels like they're flatter than when he took over. And I think that's something that, you know, you're going to have these ups and downs as a coach, even that's Jim Harbaugh, but it's, you got to be able to sell that, you know, this is just an aberration and you're, you, you know, there's brightness on the horizon and it just doesn't feel like, it feels like this Minnesota team should be more successful than they are currently. And they're looking like a bottom feeder in the big 10 right now. If you're in the big 10 West and your offense and defensive lines look like theirs did, uh, you're just not going to be able to compete. You're not going to win. Uh, there's too many teams in that, in that division that it's about the line of scrimmage. You know, you're not going to beat Wisconsin. You're not going to beat Iowa. You're not going to beat Northwestern uh, when you're like that at the line of scrimmage. And Iowa, who who this year is good on both sides. So when you play a team like Iowa, it's going to get exploited. It's not just that uh, they're bad. Iowa specifically is going to make you really pay for that. So that's the other thing is that I would be worried about if I'm a Minnesota fan is, you know, that line of scrimmage on both sides was bad. Um, not just not very good. It was bad. So how do you expect to dig yourself out over these next couple of years? Unless you have, you know, if you can't rely on this plethora of amazing skill players to bail you out. Yeah. And that was really the, the real story of at least in game story last Friday. It was just how dominant I was, you know, offensive push was in the run game because it felt like, you know, I was running backs, mainly Tyler Goodson. were just running completely untouched for like six yards a pop. And, you know, obviously that give, you can give credit to, you know, Monty Potom and Sean Byer and even Sam Laporta and all, and I was offensive line, but there was also the aspect of Minnesota's D line and front just being totally abysmal. You know, those lanes were like butter. It was, it was every single block was executed to perfection it felt like I was or, uh, Minnesota safeties and D backs had to make almost impossible plays. And that's just going to put way too much stress on a team like Iowa, who, you know, like we've been saying all year, the real star of this team so far has been Iowa's offensive line. And I would even go as far as to say, as this might be one of the best offensive lines 
Iowa's had in over a decade. They were just constantly resetting the line of scrimmage. And there were a couple outside zone plays where they just strung it out, strung it out, and the line moved everybody back three, four, five yards. And then Goodson or Sargent, then, okay, now I'm running through a guy or making a guy miss. And then there were other times where the, the lane was just massive. And it was a safety having to come down. And like you said, on a bad angle, trying to make an impossible play. And not only were they getting moved, uh, it was just pancakes galore for that offensive line. I mean, constantly just putting guys on their back. Yeah, if Iowa's offensive line wins the Joe Moore Award at the end of the year, they're going to have so many highlights from this one game. You know, because like you said, it's pancakes galore. Every single person did exactly what they were supposed to do. And they were so dominant and not just getting to their spots, but when they engaged that they were just, it felt like, you know, a, a D1 team playing in a Division II team for a scrimmage or something. And like, that's just not what Big Ten football traditionally looks like, especially even at Minnesota over the coaches that they've had in the past. And, you know, I think you talked about earlier how the, um, the passing game for Iowa was kind of neutralized because – or not neutralized, but it just didn't really move the needle because it didn't really have to. You know, the, the, their game plan coming out, and I thought some – you know, the brightest moments for Peterson in this game were um, sort of just strategy-related where Iowa was running those extended kind of handoff passes where, you know, it just throws out to the flat, quick leads to the running back, quick little screens, you know, nothing that's really a low-percentage throw. And, I mean – that's how you should be taking advantage of Spencer Petrus's arm strength too. You know, just expand the field with it. He can make a far hash throw on the money because he has that kind of cannon. And when you can do that and spread out a defense like that, you know, if your guards and your tackles and your tight ends are moving into space, you're going to have so many more running lanes to the second level because of that extended spread. I thought we saw a couple plays that were really good to see where it looked like it was one of those um, where Petrus has the decision. You know, at the snap, the line is firing off like a run. The running backs are coming up like a run. And he's just stepping up and throwing it a lot of times to the slot guy uh, on those. And as you said, those are extended run plays. And a nice utilization of with his arm, he has a quick release and a strong arm. That ball gets out there quick. And then you can get a guy like Tyrone Tracy to make a play in the open field because he essentially is kind of like a running back at receiver. So that's a great use of him and get, lets him make plays in the open field. And with his arm strength, those, you know, three to those three step drops on those outs uh, along the sideline aren't as dangerous as they are with some quarterbacks because he drives the ball in there. There's a pretty low probability of a corner being able to sit on it and jump it. You know, we saw early in, uh, Ricky Stanzi's career on those out, they got jumped for some pick sixes. And that's a guy who spent some time on NFL rosters, but just didn't have the same level of arm where this is a pretty safe throw because he hits the guy right out of their break. It's on that throw. It's usually to the correct shoulder. So as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's completion or incompletion out of bounds. Yeah. And I think that I, I like that you brought up Ricky Stanzi because I think that's, um, sort of plays into the topic of play to the strengths of your quarterback. We talked about it with Peters after the Northwestern game where, you know, the middle field throws, middle, the hat, the in between the hashes kind of throws. He really struggled that because he just didn't have a change of velocity and his placement wasn't good enough to sort of overlook that. And with a guy like Ricky Stanzi, you want almost sort of those throws because he had great touch and he had great, a good enough placement where you know, his velocity was never really getting him in trouble over the middle. But on those out throws, those are what you want Spencer Petrus and Nate Stanley's to make. And that wouldn't be what exactly you would be catering to a guy like Ricky Stanzi. And as Iowa goes forward, you know, we're just through four games. The staff is still learning those things as well. You know, what's the best way to make him effective? One thing I saw that was, was, a positive as well as he did hit Goodson on a little cross out of the backfield and he looked comfortable on that throw. It was one of the first times on a crossing route where uh, it came out of his hand. It was soft. It was to the right spot, but it just looked smooth. He didn't look like he was aiming it. He didn't look like he was trying to figure out, well, how do I place this ball, which is, you know, some of those things just take reps and it takes being calm 
And we finally saw, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we're seeing signs of some improvement on that. You know, we didn't see any of the running back screen plays where, that he struggled with recently. Um, so don't know how that's going. But we started to see some spots with that um, late in the game when he hit the, the longer pass to Sean Bayer um, down the field. Again, another pass uh, that he's able to get a little air under, a little bit underthrown, but at the same time, uh, gave a big tight end a chance to go make a play. And we saw maybe his best throw of the entire season on that play action skinny post to Tyrone Tracy, where he fitted into a, a small window on a perfectly timed route, stuck it right on him, um, where he's able to make a catch and uh, a contested catch and still fall upfield for a couple more yards. Yeah, you know, we said it after week one, we said it after week two, we said it after week three, and we're gonna be keep we're gonna continue to say it. Don't give up on Spencer Peters. We're watching this guy develop in front of our eyes and sort of grow. These are his these are what should have been practice reps, you know, and against lesser teams even. So the fact that he's been stepping in, in his first four games are Big Ten games, and now that we know how pretty good Northwestern is and how competitive Purdue's been, and you know, obviously he's he's getting his feet wet and i think that a lot of the, there's there's been a lot of promise that he's shown especially in the past two weeks and i would even say in the first two games he showed a lot of promise and you're seeing the correction not only from the coaching staff but him i couldn't have more of a positive outlook on his future down the line even this season and people i think are starting to hit the brakes on the i want you know a different quarterback in the game kind of talk the other thing I think is important to bring up with him and watching him is think about when this season started, right? And if you go back historically, you look at games in the big 10, late October, early November, you know, these are going to be weather significant games where, where you're going to have either cold weather or you have wind. Um, and those things are going to affect the way uh, any quarterback plays. And if you go back through Iowa's history over the last several years, the passing numbers do drop at this time of year and they're going to for most schools in the big 10 especially when you're up at minnesota on a 30 degree night where they had four or five inches of snow within a day or two uh, and that is a stadium that is known for especially near the end zones the wind will whip and swirl so that's another thing to think about with this is it's hard to compare him oh your first four games well let's just say the season started normally. It's not just about playing Big Ten opponents and not playing maybe some of those tune-up games. It's playing in games that are typically going to be cold weather and a lot of times windier, and that's going to affect things a lot uh, with his development, whether it's the deep pass where you're playing uh, in a swirling wind or just uh, trying to, you know, maybe that's part of why he's trying to drive some of those shorter passes because he is worried about the wind. Yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head. You know, these are kind of games that you would see if a quarterback's making his first career um, start throughout a season. These are the kind of games that you would see at week eight, you know, game eight, where he's already settled into the offense. He's been making the throws, and now it's just refining certain small things. But he's trying to overhaul everything, and then you have to know that he feels bad about throwing three picks against Northwestern because he, he felt like the spotlight was on him to make a play and go down the draw um, and win the game, even in the Purdue game, and it didn't happen. And as a young guy, I have to imagine even with a competitive spirit like him, like you have to be somewhat, you know, bummed about that. And then you have the fan base on Twitter, now that you're here allowed on Twitter, just sort of coming down on you. It's a lot to take in. And this is all, this is all the parts of development and I think that he's been handling it really well on that first pick that he threw against Minnesota. So he, he did throw one interception and it wasn't a good one. Um, it seemed like he just kind of got a little bit disrupted in the timing and then just kind of, it seemed like he panicked and threw a pick. Um, it was just, a, it was a nice little spacing route against what he thought was zone coverage. It ended up not being zone coverage. And then a linebacker sort of shot under where he was attempting to throw it. And I think that he just kind of got disrupted on the timing and then just something in his brain triggered, you know, I got to get rid of the ball because I'm going to get sacked. And that was kind of the result of that one. Yeah, that was, I mean, obviously a, a poor decision, uh, poor throw. And those are the ones though, that you, 
you learn quickly from. All right, I saw this. I thought it was this. Um, I was wrong. It's one that you just hope, okay, next time don't make that same mistake again. Uh, whereas some of his early interceptions were where uh, trying to fit the ball maybe where it shouldn't go or trying to fire it and it goes high and outside the body. And those are ones, again, learn from. Don't make the same mistake twice. So you hope that from this one, okay, poor throw, poor decision, move on. But outside of that poor throw, really there was only one other time uh, he had an incompletion early in the game to Amir Smith-Marset on an out where he threw it uh, behind him a little bit. But outside of that, uh, I thought his accuracy was pretty good. He got, he got a ball tipped at the line. He got hit on a throw, threw one away. So even though his numbers were right around 50%, I didn't feel like he was inaccurate um, with his placement. And he, there were a couple of drops involved in the game as well. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think that he needs to be the game beater this year at all. So I like that, you know, he's had the advantage of being up in this Michigan State game and the Minnesota game because these are great reps, especially coming off two games where, you know, a lot of pressure was put on the offense to put up points and they didn't come through. I'm glad that he's had this little stretch to sort of, you know, let loose and not feel like the game is weighing on every single thing that and every single decision that he makes. Um, because it's going to end up paying off down the road and it could even pay off, you know, week five or game five against Penn state. But, you know, overall, I thought it was a really great performance by the entire offense for the second straight week. And, you know, Peters didn't really move the needle in this game because he didn't really have to. And I think that's okay. I would suspect if you asked the coaching staff, that's what ex- exactly what they would want. Let's dominate on the ground. Uh, have our quarterback make the the plays he needs to. Obviously, they wouldn't want the interception, but you know, manage the team. And I know that gets thrown around as a game manager can be kind of a bad connotation, but really at times that's when you have to be. And with that, for a young quarterback, one thing that has stuck out is he has been good about making sure they're at the line of scrimmage at a good time, being aware of the play clock, um, getting them out there. I finally saw a couple times where maybe get them out of a bad play and just run the ball. Even if it's a two, three yard gain, avoid the bad play, move on to the next one. And we're starting to see some of uh, the freedom to, to either audibleize and get out of a bad play. Or as we mentioned earlier, the option play where he can just throw it out to a receiver, but doing those things that keeps the offense on the field and keeps you from, from those turnovers, like, like his bad interception. Absolutely agree. And, um, you know, as we sort of move over to the defense side of the ball for Iowa, another great game from the defense, I felt like. Uh, I, I, I've talked a little bit in crit- heavy critique and sort of shining the negative thing so far this season with Nick Neiman, but I thought he had an incredible game. I, I, I thought he was everywhere he needed to be. He made every single tackle. He was filling the right holes. Um, we got to see Seth Benson play another great game. Obviously, Zach Van Volkenberg had three sacks, ended up winning, I believe, Defensive Player of the Week in the Big Ten. Um, you had Chauncey Golston making, you know, putting pressure on the quarterback again. Riley Moss had a pick. He played. He also had a nice blitz off the edge that uh, filled in for a tackle for loss. Davion Nixon was still great. Um, you know, wh- who else? Oh, yeah, Jack Campbell. We, we saw some, some of Jack Campbell's first snaps of the season. You know, what are some things that st- stood out to you about – you know, the defensive side of the ball. I was really impressed with the front four and their ability to, to hold the offensive line and really just form a wall. And then that, let those linebackers go make plays. As you mentioned, Neiman, Benson, uh, those two, and, and Campbell for his snaps all looked really good and were able to fill in. And I think maybe only gave up one or two carries of, of 10 plus yards. So to be able to contain their run game and really form a wall and then go make plays. And on the back end, we continue to see Riley Moss and Jack Kerner make plays and make interceptions. And, and Hankins was, was solid again. And they're finding that groove. I'm really liking what I see out of Merriweather uh, in that strong safety position. They're finding that balance of uh, getting Belton at the cash and with Merriweather in the back end. And there's a couple of times with those RPO plays you could see receivers cr- cutting across the middle and they either didn't attempt 
to go for the ball or kind of short-armed it because they didn't want to get blown up over the middle. And that's a, a lot of Iowa's defensive backs just being there, being ready to play and saying, look, if you're going to catch the ball, you're going to pay for it. Yeah, I I was so impressed with how, you know, the back end guys just kind of came down and filled against the RPOs and were able to make plays and sort of kept everything in front of them. I know that's a, you know, a cliche kind of term, but that's exactly what Rashad Bateman's numbers were like. You know, there wasn't anything where he was threatening deep one-on-one coverage or a safety was at position. It never really felt like that. Every It was a very cohesive kind of effort where there was really no moment where it felt like Iowa was getting exploited on any one play, which you get, it's very hard to say in any game against any kind of opponent. Never once were you holding your breath. You know, there wasn't a, a deep pass where you're like, oh, I hope, hope he's going to get there. I hope there's safety help. You know, I think they really only threw it deep kind of maybe once or twice, once down the sideline and kind of a questionable pass interference on Hankins down the right sideline. But there was just no like hold your breath moments. And I think when you have that over an entire game, that really stands out to the defense and how good they were and just how consistent and solid they were making plays all over. And the last thing with that is it was good to see Jack Campbell back. Uh, you can see why the coaching staff is so high on him. He is, first of all, just physically really imposing there at that size, but his ability to get to the sideline. And there was a play where Minnesota had an RPO out of a shotgun set. And on the snap, he's up at the line of scrimmage. He's scraping across uh, parallel to the line of scrimmage. He sees the quarterback keep it. He flips his hips gets about two yards back into his drop, sees Morgan turn to throw it to the, the running back. And just like a bullet is out on the sideline, drops his weight, drops his target, hits the guy low, wraps up, you know, no gain. So you can really see their plays where he's out, especially on the perimeter, um, his ability to get sideline to sideline. And then twice there's a there's a pile of guys, kind of a, a scrum with the running back. And he comes in and it immediately goes backwards. Yeah, you know, there. I think we're talking about the same player, thinking about the same play, but he was up near the A-gap and standing right in between the defensive tackle and um, both defensive tackles. And it just felt, it, just his body and his size and his width, I feel like he's definitely put on some weight, you know, going into this season. He looked like Jack Heflin to me. I, I was like, oh, Jack Heflin's standing up. Wait, that's not Jack Heflin. And then he doesn't move like Jack Heflin at all. He's a super athlete and he's... I'm so excited for his potential just given, you know, his attributes that are, you don't see that at linebacker for Iowa. I don't remember any Iowa linebacker looking like a 6'5", 250 lengthy dude with athleticism. This, this is kind of an unprecedented thing for Iowa's defense. It, you said it, it's, you see him out there and you think he's lined up in the wrong spot because he is just so big and his ability to move at that size is so impressive. There was another play that stood out where uh, they brought him on a blitz, but he came all the way from the center of the field, went all the way around the defensive end, turned the corner and started to close in on the quarterback. And it's plays like that when you see somebody moving and covering ground like that, that really jump off and say, okay, this guy's just a little bit different as you said, than maybe some of the other guys they've had there. And they've had really good linebackers. And it's not to take away from the play that, that Benson is, is playing or, or how well Neiman played or even a lot of the po- positive things we've seen from Justin Jacobs so far, uh, who's another big guy. But it, it is different. I mean, you see him out there and he looks like an, and it looks like he dropped an NFL linebacker in the middle of that field. Yeah, I, I love how he looks on the defense because that's so imposing. And I mean, obviously we can talk all day about, you know, size and height and, but how is it, you know, applicable to an actual being successful on uh, as a defender. And when you see him up near the line of scrimmage, that's where it's applicable. You know, he's throwing himself at guards, like heavy dudes who, when we play with Wisconsin, it's going to be 320 pound guys, not 300 pound guys. So you know, having that weight to match and not getting just barreled down by somebody who weighs 80 pounds and more 80 more pounds than you, that's going to be playing a big factor. Um, also, I think that we should talk about something that we mentioned last week where it, it felt like last week to us and previous weeks too, 
that a lot of Phil Parker's blitzes were almost like run fit blitzes. And that's exactly what it felt like this week, especially against an RPO kind of heavy team. It just felt like a lot of those blitzes were ending up in running lanes and they had a lot of success with it. They did a nice job of mixing and matching who was coming just like they've done. But as you said, they were going to force Morgan to keep it and make that throw. And you talked about how is that his size applicable? It's at the line of scrimmage with his, his strength. It's the ability to have length to disengage from a, from a lineman. And it's also uh, to have the wingspan to, to help knock away balls that are over the middle, that extra size to close those zone passing windows. And that was some of those you saw uh, a ball go over the middle. And when he's, when the linebackers were sitting back and then there were no windows there to be, to be seen on those plays. So you brought those guys up. Uh, you mentioned last week, you would like to see Riley Moss on some of those blitzes and he had an open, there was, I don't think any receiver on his side uh, on a third down play. And he immediately took the corner and made a great play behind the line of scrimmage. And just like you've said, has the size to finish a play behind the line of scrimmage as well. You know, we've seen so many times in the past from him too, where he's just a physical guy in space who can make one-on-one tackles. You know, you look at a guy like Hankins who, if he's making a tackle in space, sometimes he's holding on for dear life, you know, trying to wait for the, the swarm to come in. He's just kind of holding up and buying time. Riley Moss is a guy that is physical enough to, you know, make the one-on-one tackle, shed a block, and then hit a guy and hold on to him and not be moved. Um, and I, that's why I think Riley Moss has been such an under, underrated player, especially this season and even in years past, but especially this season because he's shown so much more as a pass defender. He's a tackler in space. He's doing a lot for this Iowa team, not only in the secondary, but as a defense for a whole. He's been really good um, and making plays, but just being really solid, you know, not when you have a chance to make that tackle make the tackle. Don't give extra yards up after the catch. And really the defense as a whole has been doing such a good job of that. And a lot of it on some of those blitzes is coming down to the offense or the defensive line is doing such a good job of just holding the, holding up the blockers, you know, making their five guys block four and allowing the linebackers, or if it's a safety or a corner that's coming up the freedom to go make a play. And uh, just want to give one, one note, Jack Heflin and the job he's doing at defensive tackle is just really standing out. And Iowa typically doesn't have a player like that with his size. And he's given them the freedom to do some things with Davion Nixon. And so this week, Nixon's numbers, nothing jumps off. I think three tackles. I don't know if he even any tackles for loss, but those two in the middle are anchoring this defense. And they're part of the reason why this defense is ranked among the top in the big 10 and in among the top in the nation is because those, those two especially are where it starts. They control the middle of the field and let everybody else do the things that they need to do. And Zach Van Valkenburg has those three sacks. Well, most of the time he's one-on-one with that left tackle. And you know, that left tackle had an impossible time. He just made him look, look stupid several times. He just drove, he went around him. He went through him. But part of that's because you can't, can't block Heflin or Nixon with one guy. So it's going to give, uh, give those defensive ends. And Golston's another really good player. So most teams are going to say, okay, we're going to trust our left tackle. And Vin Valkenberg has continued to improve and looks like, looks like a rotation guy, not just a rotation guy, but a, a steady 50, 60 snap per game player at this point. Yeah, you know, it's crazy to think of Zach Van Volkenberg as the fourth best player on the defensive line, especially after a game where he has three sacks and he just whipping the left tackle like he's AJ Epinesa. You know, it, 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 and that's a, that goes to the, the point you just made. You can't really shift your pass protection to help against Zach Van Volkenberg. You just wouldn't do it because that would not make any sense. You know, you got to shift it to the side with Davion Nixon and uh, Chauncey Golson coming off it because you need that the guard tackle help or the center guard help because those two guys are a handful. And I thought they did pretty well um, pass protecting against Davion Nixon for the most part too. But 
like you said, Jack Heflin has been playing absolute lights out and he is such a big addition to this team. And, you know, I, I said it last week and I'm going to keep saying it until I, I feel like it's untrue, but this is the best Iowa team since the 2015, 2016 Iowa team. And one of the better teams of the past decade, just from top to bottom on defense and offense, it just has so many players and so many guys executing as a unit across the board. I mean, you look at the offensive line, Iowa has seven good offensive linemen, good to great offensive linemen. I would even say Tyler Linderbaum's a star. You look at the defensive line, the worst guy that we're talking about is Zach Van Volkenberg and he's still just coming into his own. And he's obviously the athlete enough to hang it with big 10 tackles. So I'm trying to find where this unit or this team is not even, you know, they're suspect at all. I, I don't see it. And I, I think that's why um, Spencer Peters has been taking so much of the bulk of the criticism is because he's like the only guy out there figuring it out right now. Yeah. You, you nailed it. It's the one spot where you're like, Oh, that could be a little bit better. You're not watching the defensive line and saying, man, they're missing, missing a lot here or the linebackers, you know, we're not missing a bunch of tackles. There's not a lot of, of gaps that aren't filled. The defensive backs are intercepting, you know, multiple times per game at this point. So you don't look, especially defensively, and see really any spot where you're like, oh, that they really are missing a lot here. And then offense, the offensive line has been so dominant. And, and that's the appropriate word for, for how they've played this year is they have been dominant. You know, we'll talk about the Penn State preview, but I think Petrus has been sacked three times. And one of those was Carl uh, Loftus beat Koi Kronk. Okay, great defensive end, one against the tackle, um, who we're finding out probably isn't and wasn't fully healthy. I think one sack was on his own. He scrambled, wasn't able to get back to the line of scrimmage. Uh, and then I think there was you know, maybe one other on, on a similar situation, but we're not seeing blown assignments and we're not seeing guys just get bowled over. So the dominance they've had uh, says, okay, Petrus should, he has time to throw. He should be making the right reads. And for Iowa Hawkeye fans, there hasn't been this type of receiving core in the past as well. So you're saying, well, he's got the weapons. Um, it's the one spot where there's not really a possible star, not to mention how, how Tyler Goodson and Makai Sargent have been. Uh, those two have just been playing at such a high level. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's become a thing where I was so embarrassed with Rich's that even some of the fan base is now starting to critique the small things on a guy like Sam Laporta, who is obviously a very good player, but he has those little drop kind of things that happen with him. And they're on throws that he should be catching. But it's like, that's when you have a really great team. When you're talking about a guy like Sam Laporta, you know, taking the next step to being a great player rather than a very good one. And you're talking about, you know, it's kind of crazy because last season there was a lot of attrition on Iowa's offensive line at those guard spots. And we mentioned it in before week one where every single week it felt like a new guy was in those guard spots. That's been the same thing this year. You know, they had Kyler shot at one point. They had Banwert um, at, at switching spots from the left guard to right guard in the first game. They've had different fa- – they've had about four different faces at those guard spots through the first four games, but it hasn't mattered because they have, like I said, seven good to great offensive linemen who just can't do any wrong. They do everything so right. They move people in the run game. They move well to the second level. They, they hit their targets that they're supposed to hit. In the passing game, they're in cohesion, and they're making one-on-one blocks when they have to. I remember there was an amazing play from Kyler Schott in week two where he just anchored down against um, one of Northwestern's defensive tackles. And it's just from top to bottom on that offensive line, it's just a show every single week to watch. Every time somebody comes out or switches positions, somebody's filling in and doing a a, not just a good job or an adequate job, they're doing a great job. You know, you, you worry when you lose, lose some guys, but they're stepping in. And, you know, there's a guy like Justin Britt who's now mixing in and getting really good reps as well. So just add to it another guy that can, that can go out there and, and perform. And 
last year it was both physical and mental executions guys not not pairing up but this year it has been the exact opposite guys are winning one-on-ones and the cohesion with some of those reach blocks and the way the guards in the center are working together and similarly the way the tackles and the tight ends are working together has been a master class this year it has been so good and so consistent what do you do once Kyler shots healthy and once koi Kronk's healthy what do you do with that alignment i think their their intention is probably keep rotating and i don't know if you go with a with a hot hand but you know a guy like kallenberger it's hard to take him off the field right now you know same with cody ince cody ince has, has looked great in every game he's been in and so so Kyler Shaw was probably their best guard last year. And Ben, where I've been on that bandwagon uh, from the start, I think he is a really, really good guard, um, has a great frame, communicates, moves well. But I, I really don't know. You have to make a decision. But I think my guess is they continue to rotate and maybe ride the hot hand. Or if there's a certain set of play calls that maybe work in one guy's skill set, you go with that. It's so weird to hear the phrase ride the hot hand with guard play and tackle play, isn't it? And, but like in a good context where both of your options are great players who I, I mean, it feel, it feels like, doesn't it feel like one of the guys the two, even two of the guys who are end up on the bench are NFL level talent kind of guys. Yeah. I mean, right now, you know, Koi Kronk hasn't played the last few games due to injury, but if you watch his Indiana film, it's really impressive at times. And I watched uh, his game. I can't remember if it was his junior or sophomore year against Ohio State. And he's going up against some of the best pass rushers in the nation. And he's holding his own. He's, he's meeting guys. His footwork is fantastic. He, his hand placement's really good. You watch that and you say, okay, that, that guy's got an NFL career. And you see some of the younger players like Britt and Ince. And those guys look to be on that trajectory. And Banwert, in my opinion, definitely has that, uh, you know, a guy that could be, if not an NFL starter, a great bench guy that can come in and play all three interior positions. Uh, so you see that. And, and Kyler Schott, you know, maybe doesn't have the, the physical height and length that the other guys do, but technically is really good and and as you said he is really good when he anchors and drops that weight he just stands guys up on their pass rush yeah he really reminds me of almost like a sean welshish kind of guy not the, necessarily the length but just from the, the aggressiveness standpoint and his technicality and replacing his hands there's nobody better than him on iowa's offensive line right now other than tyler linderbaum in my opinion just from a hands perspective and it's like, I want to fit him in there. But again, like you said, you don't want to disrupt the flow of the offense. You want to have sort of um, guys who are, you know, because communication is so important. And so if you're interchanging guys from snap to snap and a different guy has different tendencies just by his movement or timing and it throws it off by that middle millisecond, that could create problems too. But man, it's just going to be a tough situation for Iowa's coaching staff to sort of find the five and then stick to that five and not cause a lot of disruption around it. And we're halfway through the season. You know, we've had a couple injuries already or sickness. There's probably still more to come in a, in a season like this. So having that depth is going to be really important because at some point somebody's going to have to slide in and do something and pick up the slack because uh, every game is important normally in a conference season, but especially when it's, only a conference season and it's eight games. You know, and that's kind of been the theme of Iowa's season so far. You know, Amir gets busted for a DUI and has to miss a game. And then who steps up? Charlie Jones, the guy who nobody was looking at on Iowa's depth chart because they're so stacked at receiver. You know, Kyler Schott goes out. Koi Kronk goes out. Mark Hallenberger and Cody Ince step in and nobody bats an eye because they do extremely well. And if you know, as you know, God forbid, if Tyler Goodson does fall down, Makai Sargent has been incredible to so far this season too. So it's like, and you know, and Iowa keeps adding guys like Jack Campbell just came back this week. Seth Benson missed game one. 
it, it just feels like I was adding pieces. And when they lose a guy, another guy steps up and does the job just as well. That's been the, such an impressive part of what they've done. And when you figure that the, the time restrictions that they've had this season for those guys to be ready to play, um, maybe on a short notice or to come in and make plays has been really impressive and a tip of the cap to those guys to be ready. You know, from the first game, we saw uh, Belton at safety. And then in game two, all of a sudden, Merriweather's back there, Belton's back to cash. So you have those changes as well. So we're, we're seeing those changes that, that might happen, as we've mentioned several times, against a Northern Illinois, against, you know, some of those lower level teams. And they've had to work it out on the fly against Big Ten opponents and against, you know, start out with Purdue. And that's not a bad team. And we're seeing Northwestern where they have some limitations. And we pointed that out when we previewed them. That's a really well-coached team that has the right pieces. And you had to face, face that squad as well. So we're learning things about this team that project well for the future. Yeah. And, you know, talking about the future, um, Penn State, you know, looms. And I always hate going to Penn State because – that that environment is terrifying. Uh, without fans, it might be a little different. I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to it, but obviously Penn State has had a rough one. To, just, to say it mildly, going forward so far, because you know week one they have the stretch play where Indiana is credited for a touchdown and overtime, or actually no, it's a two point conversion in overtime to win the game by one point. Then week two they get annihilated by Ohio State. I know it was a 13 point game, but there was not a single point in that game where Penn State was in it. Then against Maryland, they really got outplayed by Maryland, who we saw Northwestern dismantle in week one. And then last week, Nebraska, again, they it felt like the entire game they were in control and they never really wavered off of that. And Sean Clifford, they're, well, I don't know if he'll be starting this week. Um, that's going to be up in the air. But he had two big turnovers that led to, I believe, two touchdowns for Nebraska. So, Penn State has had a rough one. And obviously a lot of people know about the Journey Brown situation where they're, they're starting running back coming into the year. You know, it was revealed on a COVID test that he had a heart condition that, you know, he couldn't pursue, he couldn't continue with an, uh, um, a, a football career anymore because of serious risk to his, you know, overall health and longevity. And so it's been a really wild season for Penn State because this was a team that a lot of people had as a top 10 team coming into the year preseason top 10 and it changes in a in a, a heartbeat for them and you know they had some guys opt out so you're losing some talent there and as you said uh journey brown all of a sudden uh, his football career is over uh like seven eight snaps into your first game your backup running back noah kane he goes down he's out so you're missing these spots and on top of that uh Sean Clifford has just played really poorly. He's, you know, 57% passing. He's thrown six interceptions. Uh, he's been sacked 14 times. I think it was the, the Maryland game. You watch the second half of that and talk about a guy seeing ghosts and just, he would leave the pocket, could not see receivers, even open receivers downfield. His eyes we're constantly dropping to defenders coming at him. Uh, just, you know, we said earlier, you know, we thought sometimes Petrus looks uncomfortable. This was a whole nother level. And then early in that Nebraska game, Nebraska's up seven to zero, uh, fumbles on a sack, return for a touchdown, and they dig themselves a hole again. And it's felt like all season for them, they've constantly started off by digging themselves in a hole and had to fight back. And and yeah, they've given themselves some chances. You mentioned the final score against Ohio State being closer than what that game probably really was. Uh, the Nebraska game, they came back and gave themselves some chances late, uh, but weren't able to score. And, and obviously that, that opening game, who knows what happens if that's called differently, you know, how their season uh, follows from there. But just a team that when you watch them, you say, I like this player. I like this player. I like this player. But you watch them and, and there's just no continuity or cohesion right now. Yeah. And I, you know, you look at Sean Clifford play 
and he's a guy that the physical tools are there, obviously. I mean, he has a good ball um, when he actually is hitting guys in stride and throwing to receivers. He's a good athlete, so he can make plays, whether it's designed runs or even just scramble drills outside of the pocket. And they have a good running game. You know, they have, they have some good backs even without Journey Brown and Noah Kane. So, and obviously Pat Fryermuth is a guy that a lot of NFL scouts and a lot of NFL draft people are going to be a big fan of and already are a big fan of. And so it, it's, it's interesting to see how this offense just hasn't been able to really figure it out. And then you look at the defensive side of the ball and you said it, you know, you, you keep picking out guys who you're just like, I like this guy. I like this guy. You know, Jason Owe is definitely an NFL level talent. Who's going to be playing in the NFL eventually. I, he might be, is he a true sophomore or is he a junior? That I'm not sure. I, I want to say, I know they've got some youth along the offense or along the defensive line. I don't remember where he's at exactly. Let me look it up real quick. I believe, because I want to say that last year he was a true sophomore because, oh, no, no, he's, he's a true sophomore this year. And I remember last year him just absolutely obliterating Tristan Wirfs on a few plays. So that's going to be an interesting spot to watch him against, you know, whether it's Kallenberger or Kronk this week. You know, that, that could be the first real hiccup game for Iowa's offensive line as far as any phase of it, whether it's pass pro or run, um, run, run blocking. So that could be a handful. Obviously, on the other side, they have Shaka Tony, too, who is another really great player. Um, this is going to be, I think, Iowa's offensive lines, other than the Purdue game, I think this is going to be a bigger test as far as pass protection is concerned especially with, you know, guys like Cody Inson there. And maybe – I don't know if Kyler Schott is – is Kyler Schott playing this week? Do you know that? I think he's still out probably one more week. Uh, one or two more weeks would be my guess with, with Schott. So, yeah, it's going to be, you know, the first real test for Cody Ince then um, as far as going up against true inside pressure. Um, you know, obviously Purdue happened and they had some guys inside and Karloftis switched inside sometimes but this is a true four, three that likes to pin back and actually get at it. So it's going to be interesting to see how Iowa's offensive line reacts to that kind of dynamic. Defensively, you mentioned several names that are really good players. You know, they have uh, Shaka Tony, they have Owe. Um, you know, the, the next level, Brandon Smith is a linebacker for them that really stands out and he's really good. And then in the, in the uh, defensive backs, you know, guys like Joey Porter Jr., Jaquan Brisker, those guys stand out and make plays. And, and if you go through and try to try to scout them, grade out really well and do a lot of good things. So you look at the scores and the things they're giving up, and it's like, well, what's going on here? Because there's so many positives with individual players that why are you giving up 30 points and 30-plus points to some of those teams? But when you – look back at it. Well, the biggest reason is their offense. The offense turns it over. The offense hasn't been able to move the ball. They, their run game has been really suspect. Uh, when I watched them uh, offensive, their offensive line reminds me a little bit of Iowa last year is they're good outside. The two tackles, pretty solid. Um, but on the interior, they've had some struggles and they haven't been able to run the ball very well. Uh, they've given up 15 sacks in these games and, and, you know, Nebraska teams like Nebraska and Maryland are not known for these amazing pass rushes. It's one thing if, you know, you're playing Ohio state and you give up four or five, but when you're giving up all of those sacks to the, the other teams, you know, that's a major cause for concern. Yeah. This does feel like a game where Davion Nixon could really have a national kind of coming out party where people look back and he has two and a half sacks three tackles for loss, and it just looks like he's been dominating the entire game. I would not be surprised in the least about that. Um, Jack Heflin's going to create a lot of problems. And then you look at their quarterback situation. I don't know if Sean Clifford's starting at this point because he didn't finish the game against Nebraska. Uh, Will, Le Will Levis or Levi's? Levis. Um, Levis. Will Levis came in, and he has kind of a, a quick trigger and a lot of velocity, but there were some throws where – it just felt like downright erratic, you know, neither guy looked great in that game, but I wonder if they're going to do a sort of first drive goes to some player. The next drive goes to another player until they kind of figure out 
because it really does feel like a QB competition is going to be happening in game against Iowa. Yeah, uh, James Franklin, I think, hasn't really stated who the who the starter would be. I would expect to see both quarterbacks play, and both have struggled. Uh, Levis is actually a guy that was Iowa's number one quarterback target in that recruiting class. It's uh, the same class that, that they ended up getting Petrus late in that class. But they went hard after Levis, um, a guy from Connecticut. So Ken O'Keefe knew about him, uh, was a pretty big recruit as well. But you said he's been erratic. Uh, his po- in the pocket, he's looked a little unsure as well. And, and Clifford just hasn't looked the same as, as what he looked at times last year, um, both with decision-making and um, accuracy. And, and what's hurt them too with him is really an in, inability to push the ball down the field at all. Because on offense, uh, Fryermuth is a really good tight end. You know, you can equate him similar to a guy like a Hawkinson and a Noah Fant. Maybe not quite to their level, but pretty close. That's that's a type of player he is. And on the outside with Dotson is a really good wide receiver. So they've got two targets in the passing game that are good players, but their inability to run the ball and the inconsistencies, especially on the interior of the offensive line, have really caused them to have a lot of troubles. And you mentioned Nixon and Heflin. When breaking down and getting ready for this game, that's really the one spot where I see one advantage going to one team because Iowa's offensive line has been really good. Uh, Penn State's defensive line is good. They're good against the run. As you said, they have guys on the perimeter that can pin their ears back and get it to the quarterback. They've got some guys at the second level that are really good, and Iowa has some playmakers. But the one spot that sticks out that you say, okay, there's an advantage to team A or B, it is the interior of the line, Iowa's defensive tackles, versus the center and the guards for Penn State. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited for this game because, one, this is going to be a game where Petrus is going to have to show development unless he wants Iowa's fans' ire again because this is a game where I, I theoretically could see him turning the ball over if he's not careful, if he's not poised, if he's not settled and making the right throws because he's a great athlete. He needs to use that ability to get outside the pocket against these guys and maneuver inside the pocket because they're going to be coming at him um, and they're going to be getting at him. They're going to have their times, like I said, for the first time all year where they're really getting hits on the quarterback and getting pressures on the quarterback. And I, I really want to see how Petrus handles that because he's going to have to step up and do something that he hasn't done in these last two blowouts. If you're the Iowa offensive staff, uh, you're going to hopefully find ways to get the ball out quick. Um, you know, some of those extended run plays on, to the receivers and also move him in the pocket. Don't let him be a stationary guy back there where the defensive ends can pin their ears back, try to either go through the tackle or around the tackle and have a stationary target because those are guys that can turn those plays into six the other way, you know, a strip sack or, or a blind side hit. And those are the plays in a game like this where two teams are pretty even at a lot of positions that can really flip a game, the turnover game. Um, And both teams are pretty good on special teams. And while we say special teams, it's a place where Iowa has really had an advantage every single game. Um, And they'll still have an advantage in this game, but maybe not as much as at some other times. So it's going to be really interesting to see that chess match of how do, how do the Iowa coaching staff, what do they do to keep Petrus, to give him a little confidence early on a big road game? You know, even without 110,000 fans there, uh, it's still going to be and is an intimidating environment to go, walk into. Yeah, and obviously we've been talking about it. Penn State, this is a team that is loaded with talent still, and they have a great coaching staff. This isn't like a, a rebuild kind of team. If you were to tell me Penn State was 0-4, even with, you know, saying a Sean Clifford meltdown or just him not performing up to expectations, I would still be shocked that they're 0-4. And it does feel like, and this isn't really a true analysis kind of cue, but it does feel like the Penn State do factor is kind of a thing. The, t- the, clock's, the clock's kind of ticking, and it just feels like they're waiting for their first win. And they, they're, they're right there. They had their shot last weekend. They had their shot against Indiana, who's now finding themselves in the top 10. It, it just kind of feels like Penn State is 
is looking to, you know, get that first win in the win column. And Iowa's been rolling in the first two weeks. So it's a battle of does Iowa get complacent and does Penn State come out firing? And we'll have to see how that goes. There's two statements. Uh, the first one, Kirk Ferentz said this week, he goes, you watch him on, on film. I think he uses the word tape. Uh, st- still thinking about that. But I always laugh when he says that. But uh, you watch him on film, and it doesn't look like a team that should be 0-4. Uh, but mistakes have really killed them. Mistakes have been their Achilles heel this season. And the other thing is there was a viral video from Urban Meyer during one of the halftimes where he talked about, look, there are not bad coaches at this level and there are not bad players. And you look at this Penn State roster and you see the depth chart. And uh, it's a coaching staff that while I don't think a lot of fans, especially opposing fans or big James Franklin fans, he is very easy to rub you the wrong way, you know, kind of in that PJ Fleck manner. But he's had a lot of success and he is a good coach and they have a good staff and that roster is full of talented players so like you said, it just feels like a matter of time before they get that win. Um, now we'll watch and figure out, is it against the Hawkeyes or is it going to be a later date in this season? Yeah, there's something about those bald Big Ten coaches, I guess, that just kind of rub people the wrong way. Um, you know, I guess let's go into prediction time. You know, this is, this is a big game for Iowa to turn the tables and break out of the 500 record, um, get their first winning record of the season and really show that they're moving in the right direction as a team. And um, especially in 2020, maybe run the table question mark, but um, you know, how do you see this game playing out? What's your final score? I believe the spread right now is minus two and a half for Iowa. I I think it's going to be a really close game and come down to uh, either a special teams play or a big turnover. I, I think it's going to be a low scoring game. Both teams have quarterback play that's been inconsistent this year. Um, and both teams have defenses that have the ability to make a lot of plays and, and to shut down the other team. Even though Penn State maybe hasn't played at the level they're capable of this season, uh, it's a defense that's definitely capable of doing that. So I see the game uh, being a low-scoring game. I, I have a hard time seeing either team get into the 30s here. But I think the Hawks go on the road uh, and get a big win to get over 500. Um, and I, I just think Penn State right now, you watch them and you, you see a team and you say, well, how do they keep losing? And there's nothing that sticks out, but there's just something that's not right with that team right now. And whether it's just the quarterback play or something else, uh, I, I think the Hawks go on the road, get the win. I, you know, something, maybe, maybe a strange score, like a 26-22 type game. I could see something kind of strange, you know, hopefully not four to six, although I would take a four to six, a six to four win. Um, but I, I think we see something low twenties for both teams. You know, it's so interesting that you gave that score because I'm going to give my prediction score right now. Cause it's been in my head since we started this 27, 22, Iowa. Um, I, I do think the Hawks win this game because like you said, there's a lot of dysfunction with Penn state and yeah, they have been, they have had their chances to win a game, but it feels like even since week one that Iowa is clicking everywhere. And this isn't just – this isn't the regular Iowa team that we've seen in the past against Penn State. This is a very, very good Iowa team in my opinion. I think that they win this game. I think they have a really good shot to run the table. But this is a game where I think that there's going to be a lot of turnovers. And I, I do see maybe two from Iowa. I see maybe two or three from Penn State because – there's going to be pressure on the quarterback from both sides. Um, I could see Spencer Petras getting riled up a bit. I could see whoever Penn State's quarterback is getting riled up a little bit. And I do think that lends itself to, you know, the upper 20s for Iowa because they're going to get some field position. And I do think that their offense is good enough to put up more than 12 compared to what they did last year. So, you know, those factors in play, I do think Iowa gets this win. Um, I do think it's going to be a very trying win for Iowa, and it would be the, you know, the first two games that were sort of close like this, and it came down to the wire. Iowa didn't complete it. I think they find a way to get over the hump in this one and then pull out the W. I'm with you. For Iowa, the, the other matchup I'm interested in is, is how do they handle, you know, both Frymuth and Dotson. 
because Dotson's a type of receiver that can give them fits, you know, not a real big guy. He's, he's probably somewhere, you know, between he's not as good as, as Bateman or, or Bell, but he is a guy that can, can make plays uh, in the open field, can cross. So Iowa needs to make sure they're getting pressure on whichever quarterback it is, because if he has time to scan, you're not going to be able to cover him for, for three, four seconds. So the defensive line has to do their job. Uh, make the quarterback make quick decisions. Um, but how are they going to match up? Or are you going to try to put a safety on on the tight end? Are you going to make try to make a linebacker cover him? So that's going to be another one of those chess mass matches between the coaching staffs. Because if you're Iowa with the inconsistencies Penn State's had at quarterback, I think you just have to avoid giving up the big play. And those are guys that can make a big play. So if you can prevent that offensively with their inability to run the ball consistently, they're going to have to need uh, Penn state is going to need big plays or defensive scores. I think to match what Iowa can do offensively. Yeah. And when you look at a guy like Pat Fryermuth, it's, it's interesting to watch how I was done against tight ends that are of that caliber in the past. And what I imagine is going to be the case on, on Saturday is there's going to be a dose of Nick Neiman. I would love to see Jack Campbell try his hand at that just because of, you know, the build factor that we've talked about. Um, I also think there's going to be a lot of bracket coverage. So Matt Hankins is probably going to find his way on there sometimes. Um, maybe Julius Brents, maybe some Dame Belton. I think it's going to be a mixture and not really a guy trailing him or even pressing him off the line, which I, I don't think is the way to go, but it's probably what's going to happen. And we'll have to see how that turns out. Yeah, that's, that's just something to watch as the game goes on, you know, or even if you said they bracket, they kind of try to bump him off the line and, like we've said, they've given up a lot of sacks. So if you can disrupt the timing of that route, uh, you've got a chance to get to the quarterback and, and bring him down. Uh, three sacks for Iowa this week. As you said, I think we see Nixon have one of those big games. Uh, Heflin might bowl him over on a play. And, and I think we see Golson get one to one and a half. Maybe he, he joins Nixon on one of those two. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> uh, Davion on Nixon dropping back in coverage, getting a pick. <laughs> that'd be a fun one. Well, we would like to thank you guys for checking out this podcast for the fifth straight week. Yeah, fifth straight week. Wow. Uh, you know, we're, we're turning out these podcasts. We're trying our best to do it every single week. You guys have shown a lot of love to it. Um, you know, we can check out the views. We can check out the download counter. And that's been pretty steady around 1,000. Um, sometimes even more than a thousand. And obviously that's so appreciated because we do take an hour out of our time each week to, you know, put this together. And, you know, I've had a lot of fun. I love talking to Iowa football and, you know, if you guys keep checking it out and you want to drop some feedback or you have questions or you want us to do something on next week, next week's podcast or in future podcasts, you know, let us know. Enjoy this game. I think uh, we see the Hawks uh, have a nice road trip back for the second straight week. Yeah, thank you guys. Have a good weekend.